Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We start strong with Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. His top risk 2020 just released, always timely, and he releases it this year with America front and center. And of course, part of that is our coverage of the president. And then we'll hear from the Senate impeachment trial. That will be 12 p.m. New York time, tentatively scheduled for that. We're thrilled that Dr. Bremer begins our uh, Tuesday here in Davos. Ian, wonderful to have you here today. Why did you make the U.S. a top risk for this year? Uh, well, size of the market's massive. Uh, and the unprecedented nature of the election coming up, where half of the population is going to think that it is rigged, is going to think it's delegitimized. I mean, that is important. You're going to have, you know, a period of time, whether it's weeks or months, uh, when we've had the election, but in all likelihood, we haven't agreed on who the next president is. Yeah. Haven't had that uh, since Bush Gore. And Bush Gore, at least, both sides were prepared to see what the Supreme Court was going to rule. This is more unprecedented than right. people are prepared to accept. Who is a president going to speak to here roughly 30, 35 minutes? Who is he talking to? as he comes to Davos. Oh, no, he, look, he loves it here. Right when he, you remember, he was here three years ago, yeah. and everyone thought it was going to be a disaster, and he had a great time. And the CEOs were extremely nice to him, and they did uh, a lunch. Remember the lunch around the lunch table? Absolutely. And I mean, so did you go to that lunch, Francie? I did it, but actually, I remember like you know billionaires trying to fight to go and listen to the president. Absolutely. Look, I mean, you got to understand. First of all, the the delegates here may not like Trump; they like his policies. Um, they like the regulatory rollback. They like his cabinet. Um, they like his tax policy. And I did an informal poll last night. Uh, about 40, 50 delegates. Uh, on balance, I would say they think he's going to win a second term. And there was a zero panic about the prospect that that might happen. So, I mean, you can have Greta here, and you can have a bunch of people talking about climate sustainability, but the reality is that right. Trump okay. doesn't drive people crazy at Davos the way he does in the United States. And people should hear that. They should know what the power brokers in the room in the closed door are actually yeah. are thinking. Um, Ian, President Trump does his, you know, the inaugural address for the World Economic Forum 2020 on the day where his impeachment trial starts. Is he going to be fighting? And is he going to say, look, Europeans, you're not doing enough. I'm going to impose tariffs because he needs an adversary to distract? Or is he going to try to keep everyone on side? I'd be very surprised um, if he's adversarial with this group. I expect this is going to be Trump saying victory lap. I'm the greatest ever. My economy's doing well. My markets are taking off. Look how much money I'm making, you guys. I got rid of Soleimani. I'm killing ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And he may go off script and talk about how bad and how unfair the impeachment is, but this is going to be a triumphalist, okay. unilateralist president. Do people in the states care? So does the voter care about what President Trump says in Davos? I mean, they care for a day. Sure. And then they move on to the next thing. I mean, did we care when the Iran crisis hit? We did. You're not asking me about it now. I mean, these these cycles are incredibly short, but it's interesting to see yeah. how the global markets and the global investor community actually orient. You've got Steve Schwartzman coming up. You know how close he's been to Trump over the course right. of the last couple of years. I mean, generally well, speaking, this is a group that wants access. They pay for access. Right. And they're pleased when that happens. And we'll talk to Steven Schwartzman about that, about the fundraisers and all his support of the president, which has been somewhat controversial, I'll say. Ian, you've been studying this for decades. How alone is America right now because of this president and this president's policies? Is it an America alone, not only at Davos, but just generally worldwide in the Eurasia world? How alone are we? It's more alone uh, because of this president. Certainly, he doesn't care as much for traditional alliances or multilateral institutions the Americans have created. But let's be clear. The United States is in decline vis-a-vis -vis China. The Chinese are spending a lot of money internationally. Why are we in decline with China on a per capita basis? And they've got, what is it, Wuhan? They've got, they've got a major health scare going on in China. And we're Globally, in decline. it is very clear that Belt and Road is a bigger event than Davos. It attracts more heads of state. It dispenses more cash. But America's relationship vis-a-vis -vis American allies, the U.S. is not only not in decline, it's increasing in power. In the role of the dollar, in military 
expenditure and its strength in production of oil and gas and food. And, and if Trump's not president next year, that's still going to be true. Mm. And allies don't want to deal with that reality, but it is the case. And he's figured out what kind of capitalism China will have in five, ten years from now. Uh, the fact that the Chinese are not in any way aligning with or integrating with Western-style capitalism is something that these CEOs are having a hard time coming to terms with. This is the 50th year anniversary of Davos. And for 50 years, the message that has come from this platform has been winning globally. Globalization and free market capitalism. It's not anymore. And the reason for that is because the Chinese are not aligning right, so with that. What, are we peak globalization? Oh, clearly. So, so it's just going to be declined from now? Uh, it's not the end of globalization, but we're peak globalization. I mean, the decision of the United States and the Chinese to decouple from each other in terms of technology is the single biggest step away from globalization we've seen in the 50 years oh. since Davos has been created. Absolutely. The Edelman Trust Barometer, Richard Edelman scheduled to join us. I can't say enough about this important document, the Edelman Trust Barometer. I was stunned at the separateness on capitalism of general society and the elites. Does that surprise you? And what's the solution for the anointed up this happy valley to reattach to the rest of America and, frankly, to the rest of the developed economies? It's hard to claim that the average American is capitalist when the average American doesn't have capital. I, I mean, certainly that's the way I was raised, right? I mean, my, my mom said they're not taking care of you. Only, they're all going to lie. And the, they being government. There's a single the sentence for Richard Edelman where he says CEOs have to become much more activist about explaining how everybody gets inclusive. Do we need Jamie Dimon, Michael Corbett and the others to be more assertive about distributing the benefits of capitalism to Americans? No, no, we don't. We don't need them to explain. We need this, the problem to start being resolved. We need less inequality in the United States. We need people that are being left behind and feel the system is rigged to feel less that way. And there's nothing that CEOs can say. There is no document they can sign. There is no advertisement they can take out in a paper that is going to change that reality if the reality doesn't change. And let's keep in mind, not only is global inequality and American inequality increased over the last several years, mm -hmm. but also now we have an economy that's starting to soften globally. The IMF just yesterday Yesterday, yeah, reducing. After that yesterday. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, I, one has to think that in that environment, CEOs are going to be more laser-like focused on returns, irrespective of what they're saying totally while they're up here on Magic. Editorializing, totally I agree with that. I know, I, I know that a loss can happen from now until November in the U.S. election, but the popularity of President Trump, I think, is plateauing at 42%. It's not really That's ever gone above. That's roughly where it is for and three is that years enough? now. Is that enough to, to, to win? I mean, it, first of all, it depends on who the Democratic nominee is. If Bernie Sanders were the nominee, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's enough to win. Um, if it's, you know, Joe Biden, it, it might not be. But let's keep in mind, this is an unprecedented election, not only because it's about Trump and turnout's likely to be very high, also because there's massive amounts of money that Bloomberg is planning on spending, irrespective of who the Democratic right. nominee is. Yeah. I have to say that. Um, and because the role that Trump is likely to play in terms of his will Willingness to abuse power yeah. when impeachment has been broken is also going to be new. So it's hard to make that call. One more question here with Dr. Bremer before we move on through uh, this important hour. Again, the president. Can I just was, say Michael Bloomberg is oh, running for president? We're fighting over who's going to do the disclaimer. Well, no, I want to do the disclaimer. Do, okay, do it. No, no, you do is it. I, disclaimer? I can do it if you want. Michael Bloomberg. Is running for president. Yes, okay, there we go. There's our disclaimer. We should. Bend. He's a founder of Bloomberg LP and also uh, uh, this TV and radio operation as well. Ian Bremmer, this is so important. You say CEOs cannot affect an attachment to the American public with words and with lip service. What is a prescriptive policy that is going to reattach an America to capitalism? What's the to-do list for Washington to get this done? Well, I mean, I, I would say that almost every American CEO I know tells me in the next five to ten years that they can make more money with fewer people. Um, that reality somehow is going to need to be changed by coming up with jobs for more people. They're going to have to invest much more in training. They're going to have to hire more, not less. They're going to have to raise wages for the working and the middle class. They have to do that as a reality when the government is not stepping in. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't really matter right. what they say. And, and they're, they're going to be fighting upstream. Remember, the fourth industrial revolution, that was come up with here right. by Klaus Schwab a few years ago. But for the average worker that says yeah. capitalism doesn't work, it's not fourth industrial revolution. It's a post-industrial revolution. Because they're yeah. not 
not part of it. Ian Bremmer, thank you so much for starting us off in this important hour. He is with Eurasia Group. I can't say enough about their top risk uh, 2020. Of course, Dr. Bremmer here uh, with us all this week as well. Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone. Who was that speech to? Was it for uh, the U.S. citizens back home so they get him reelected, or was it for the participants of Davos? I think it was for several different constituencies. I, I think here, here's somebody who is having the impeachment uh, uh, process uh, start with the trial uh, today, and I, I think this was a speech uh, to basically say, I think we need some perspective, uh, and let's look at what's happened. Uh, under this administration. Uh, and I think that's not just for domestic uh, uh, consumption. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's meant to be heard uh, in a broader context. Could the U.S.-China phase one deal have been signed 12 months ago? Um, it would have been if it could have been, uh, but, but it couldn't have been done. Uh, and, you know, part of... Uh, the, the issue on the trade agreement, uh, Francine, is, 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 is that, you know, you, you need two countries and each country has its own politics. And, and China uh, is, is not a, a monolithic uh, country in that sense. Uh, they, they have their hardliners, they have right. their reformers. And, and what's happened over the last, it's actually been three years uh, that, that, that the U.S. and China have been discussing changes uh, in trade that it takes a while uh, uh, for a country that's got a very particular system uh, like China yeah. to, to basically make a decision uh, to start changing the system that's been very successful for them. So, so I, I think that the, the fact that a phase one deal was done uh, meant that both parts in China right. have come together along with the U.S. side, which itself had uh, ambitions uh, that, that ranged uh, uh, from, from exceptionally uh, comprehensive uh, to not so much so. Uh, and, and so everybody met in the middle. Uh, Steve Schwarzman with us with Blackstone, our chief executive officer. And I might point out, author, the Belvedere Hotel is the ancient hotel here. It's where you came years ago if you were a uh, have with the tuberculosis treatment and all. There's a wonderful photograph of Robert Louis Stevenson in the background of that. And to get well, to the, the Robert... Book. The, Thomas Mann, the Magic Mountain. The Thomas Mann, the Magic Mountain. And, and to get to uh, those photographs of Robert Louis Stevenson, you've got to walk through the lobby in the bookstore known as the Stephen Schwartzman Bookstore as well. How are book sales here in Davos? Well, you know, actually, um, we're giving them away. Oh, you're so, giving so them this away? This is a new low. That, that's, uh, that sounds like private equity. Did you, is this your idea over here? You let him give away books? There goes the profit margin. Well, is what, well, they wouldn't let us sell them. Okay, cool. And I wanted people to read them. Okay, I want, so so it's interesting, Tom. This morning I was at something at 7 o'clock. Four or five people walked up, said, could you please sign my book? Uh, you know, I just picked it up. I'm excited to read it. Has so Tim that, Cook or Jeff good. Bezos read your book? Have you run into Tim Cook or Jeff Bezos about the Schwartzman theme? Well, it, it's interesting. Um, I saw Jeff uh, before the book was published. And, and I said... Jeff, here's what I'm doing. Here's the theme. Uh, could you be helpful with Amazon? And he said, sure, send it to me. Uh, and we'll take care of it. This is so important, Steve. I want to make this point. I went down to the offices of Jeff Winter's LinkedIn the other day at the Empire State Building, and you're stuck in traffic, and you look over, and you're right as you go down Fifth Avenue is the Schwartzman Library, the New York Public Library. You, more than anybody in America, know the new technology of Cook and Bezos versus the old technology of what you've donated millions of dollars to. What is, what is the focus of technology that you see right now? Is it a benefit to Americans or all of the tension of this election and all? Is it because they're technological haves and there are too many technological have-nots? Well, we've got to get everybody to be a technological have. Uh, technology is, is benefiting America in an enormous number of ways. For example, you know, you take your smartphone. You know, you two would be lost without that, as would I. 
Uh, and uh, the, we're also lost with it, but that's, but that's Steve, a whole Steve, other conversation. Steve, I want to go back. There's that track photo of you running around doing a three-minute mile a few years ago. I want to go back long ago and far away. You supported this president because the Republicans had the vision with Democrats to build the interstate highway system in the 50s. Can't you help the president support an interstate highway of technology in America where we take the whole country and get all this fixed? I think that there is enormous need, and it's bipartisan, uh, uh, Tom, that, you know, Chuck Schumer, for example, um, along with many people in Congress, want to make a major step forward, uh, as does the administration, um, in terms of providing money uh, for AI uh, and uh, what may be even more consequential, quantum, uh, in the future. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the universities that are doing this advanced research, uh, the companies uh, who, are, who are sort of the American flagship carriers uh, in technology, all want more research funds uh, to increase competitiveness. Now, this really will end up benefiting regular people, whether it's with diagnoses uh, of illnesses with much more reliability, uh, development of drugs, which could end up being half the cost uh, as a result of it. Uh, huge breakthroughs in education, uh, where you'll be able to, to instruct students of all different types of backgrounds. So, so technology uh, has, has got mm -hmm. some enormous benefits. What's the biggest unknown for 2020 for the markets? Is it the U.S. election? Is it global growth? Or is it geopolitics? Well, it's not global growth. I think global growth will continue. Uh, the biggest risk, uh, you know, for, for markets uh, are, are two types of things. One is U.S. domestic politics. And the second is the black swan uh, effects that can happen. I mean, we just had an incident, for example, uh, in, in uh, Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was watching television. Uh, uh, almost everyone was declaring World War III starting. Uh, they all happened to be wrong. But if they were right uh, and the Straits of Hormuz were closed and we ended up, uh, you know, with a, a huge dislocation, you could get thrown accidentally. Uh, into a slow growth to recession. But it's quite amazing how the market quickly discounted. Once there, w there was no you know, immediate threat of war, they kind of moved on. We have asset prices really priced to perfection. So how, how do the two kind of match up? Well, usually perfection doesn't last. Uh, and, you know, uh, this has been an amazing run. Usually you expect some type of uh, adjustment. Uh, but but if, 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 if we don't have... Uh, a, a really um, discontinuous event oh. with U.S. politics, uh, and we avoid um, the kinds of major right. international type of, of risks, um, geopolitical mm -hmm. risks, I, I think we'll go on yeah. with variability mm -hmm. up and down over today's levels. Steve, I got time for one more question because I know you're going off to go skiing on this perfect day in, in <laughs> Davos. I'm going to ask you the same question I would ask Mr. Rubenstein and the others. Richard Edelman's come out with a study that the, that would be the president leaving right now, those sirens you hear in the background. Richard Edelman's come out with a study of how capitalism is removed from so many people in America. Is it time for private equity, time for private equity to change its tax treatment uh, that's been in place over the years? Well, I, I leave that one, Tom, to, uh, uh, to, to the political uh, people, uh, every one of whom has their own unique solution uh, for the ills of the world. Uh, what I'd say is part of uh, the Edelman study also had to do with overall trust. Uh, in institutions, mm -hmm. and I, I think there's a real need uh, right. to, to address what's going wrong uh, with our society where so many people question almost every, right. every institution in society. How much pressure are you feeling? One final question, because we couldn't hear Tom's question, so it was a lost question, it doesn't count. How much pressure are you feeling from investors to put cash to use? We, we don't have that kind of pressure. They don't, they, they don't want we, you we, to go in now? We've, we've invested a lot of money over the years. 
uh, when, when, when prices are high, you try and invest less. Uh, you know, when they're low, you try and invest more. Uh, we, we sell a lot of things when okay. prices are high. We try and find things. It's harder. Uh, well, I got to make some news high. here, Steve. Are you buying or selling right now? I mean, the market down 30,000. Watch here. We, we, got, we got to go here. The ski lift is waiting for Mr. Schwartzman. But quickly, are you buying or selling? We do both, Tom. We do both. Get off the stage. I'm trying to get an answer to Steve Schwartzman. Unplug him and throw him out of here right now. What is he, an economist? On the one hand. And on the other hand, Steve Schwartzman, thank you so much. Well, go sell a book with Blackstone this morning. Citigroup had a most original path, is arguably our most international bank. We begin our banking coverage here, John and I, with Michael Corbett. He's the chief executive officer of Citigroup, uh, and we need a most timely update now. Give me an international view from our most international uh, bank. What is the state of Citigroup globally? state of Citigroup, Tom, is that you know, we're coming off of a, a strong year and a strong close to the year. And if you look at both at a product level, at a geography level, solid performance across our consumer and institutional businesses. And as you go to Latin America, as you go to Europe, Asia, uh, around the globe, right. strong uniform performance. The happy talk of Davos is best practices. What is the worst practice you're trying to avoid now as you look back at the heritage of 07? Uh, from a Davos perspective or from a city from perspective? From a city group perspective, what's the worst practice you're trying to avoid each and every day? Is to, we, you know, we don't come to work. We can't be. No one can be everything to everybody. So the financial supermarket mentality, I think, that permeated the first part of the, the 2000 to 2007 era and to come to work to do the things that we can do best. And as you say, we are the most international, certainly of the U.S., and we're, in fact, probably the most international of really any list of banks in the world. And as we think about the fact that today, around the things the president discussed, the trade deals and things that have gone on, our clients need us more than ever. Well, Mike, let's talk about that. You hear it from the president this morning through the afternoon, optimism. I hear it from you, upbeat, optimism. I don't feel that walking around the yeah. halls of this particular event at the moment. There is some real pessimism there, despite the fact unemployment's at multi-decade lows, despite the fact we have the longest recovery on record. Why not? What are we missing here? Well, if we were here, and we were here a year ago, yeah. there was pessimism then. If you remember the way that 2018 ended, I talked about a real fundamental disconnect between what the consumers' behaviors were saying and what the markets mm -hmm. were saying. The markets, as we were here, were giving pretty strong signs of a forthcoming downturn. And in fact, we didn't see it. We're here a year later. Um, the S&P's up 25%, city stock's up 30%. The markets had pretty broad-based good performance. And by the way, the consumer's still in good shape. The consumer has been the backbone of this recovery. Who's standing up for capitalism this week? I, I, think, uh, I think all the, the firms. Do you get that sense? I don't get that sense at the moment. I, I get a sense that things are changing that the guardians of the status quo realize they can't protect it anymore and they need to change before someone changes them. Do you not get that feeling, Mike? Well, you know, again, I think we get, we, we get in this nuance between capitalism and, and what's responsible. Mm -hmm. And I think today what you're hearing from companies around stakeholders, right, is something I think in many cases that's been embraced for years, it just wasn't necessarily talked about. You think in today's age as coming to work as a company, um, one of your stakeholders, your employees. If your employees don't feel good about well, who you are and what you do, you're <clears> not going to keep them. If your customers well, and clients don't feel good about what you do, you're not going to keep Michael, them. Michael, I want to go back to a Harvard discussion here, folks, and I've been told Corbett will walk off the set if I bring up Harvard-Yale football, which was beyond ugly uh, this past uh, November. I want to go back to Michael Porter 101. I'm sure you've been in many classrooms with the, the, the wonderful Michael Porter over the years, and that is too many Americans feel a barrier to entry to prosperity. They feel a barrier of entry to society. People are looking, Richard Edelman clearly sees that, people are looking to elites and our too big to fail banks to assist those people to get through those barriers. How do you affect that? Well, uh, it's a real problem. And in there, 
when you think of the fact that we're 11, 12 years into quantitative easing, quantitative easing adds to but that Michael, divide. But Michael, come on, QE is for the elite. Ben Bernanke said we had to save the banks. We saved the banks, you were advantaged by that. Every bank was different, I get that. What do we do for the people out there that are just at Citigroup retail, they're worried about fees and that, what do we do to help them get to within society now? Well, I think all the pieces that, not just city, but the industry's working on in terms of inclusive finance, right? If you look at the programs we're out there, we're getting ready to launch a program probably in the springtime with Google in terms of being able to bring more people in, the digitization of banking, mm -hmm. compression, removal of fees, frictions in people's lives. And by the way, it's the mindset and the mantra of being able to create for people best in life experiences. And that's not best in banking, but that's how do we create that best in life experience and bring more people in to have the access. And if you look at what's going on at Citi, not just in the U.S., but around the world, we're bringing people, we're bringing business, we're bringing small business, we're bringing women, we're bringing all of those things to bear in terms of inclusive finance. I'm going to ask the question that I know really winds up CEOs on Wall Street at the moment, so forgive me for doing it. $18 billion. That's how much was saved by the six biggest banks on Wall Street for last year because of the tax cut. And people keep asking the same question. And I'm not sure the big banks on Wall Street have done a great job of telling us where the money's gone. Where's it gone? Well, one is we are a taxpayer and a significant taxpayer off of our roughly $20 billion of net income that we earned in 2019. It's gone into our infrastructure. It's gone into technology. It's gone into people. It's gone into lending. Yep. It's gone into investing. Uh, we just announced an uh, initiative where we're going to be actually investing uh, around clean and green technology. Uh, and you know, we just announced, uh, launched a $150 million program over the next few years in terms of putting some of those monies back. Returns to shareholders last year, what were they, $22.3 billion? I'm not sitting here opposed to buybacks. That's not my position. It's not my job to have a position. I'm just wondering how we reconcile some of the things we hear at an event like this from CEOs on Wall Street about moving away from shareholder primacy when we see record profits and monster returns to shareholders year after year. How do we reconcile those two things in the years to come? One is, I think, to hold us accountable for what we do. And in there, yes, we did return $22 billion to shareholders, mm -hmm. but we also grew our loan portfolio at a pace faster than global GDP. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we did it systemically responsible. You know, if you were to take that $22 billion and be forced to reinvest it, Tom asked the question about what you do different. You've got, to be, you've got to be scaled to serve your market. And if you're putting right. all those monies back in, I would argue that it's, it's tough to, to keep your responsibility in that. We welcome all of you here for the meetings of the World Economic Forum. I'm Bloomberg Radio and I'm Bloomberg Television. We're with Michael Corbett. He's the chief executive officer of uh, Citigroup. Within Citigroup, and you mentioned earlier technology, you just brought in, dragged in, I should say, a new head of retail. What a challenge five and 10 years forward is you and every other bank, regional banks, the small banks, survive the technological demands of retail. What's the Corbett strategy for retail? What are the marching orders to your new guy running retail banking? Well, we've got a new gal running retail. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and uh, the marching orders are to make sure that we are pushing ourselves to be offering, Tom, that best in life experience. It's not about being best in bank. But if you can match the ride-hailing app, the retail app, whatever right, it is exactly. out there, take frictions out of people's lives and reimagine what banking can be. Does friction mean job cuts? No, not at all. What are you going to do with all those bodies in re traditional retail banking? Um, one is that the pace of change is probably slower than people think, meaning that we okay, cover fair. a continuum of people. Mm -hmm. And we are today running an analog and a digital bank that will change over time, but um, we have a large cohort of people that actually want their I want it now mm -hmm. mentality in terms of their digital banking on their app. They want to come in our branch. They want to speak to people. And when you can provide that and segment that in the right way, it's very powerful. So it's not necessarily using less people. It's being smarter about how and where and the ways that you use people. How proud would you be to hand over the reins to Jane Fraser and be the first bank on Wall Street to break the glass ceiling? How proud would you be to do that? 
Well, of course I'd be very proud, but you know, two things is that, you know, one is that that decision is not mine, it's the board's. My job and my responsibility is to make sure that we're preparing people. Right. And, and you know, uh, you know, Jane has had a phenomenal career with us, and you know, we continue that uh, that role of making sure that if and when the time comes, she's ready. And, and and it might be in your hands, Mike. You feel good? Another five years? That's what we hear from Jamie Dimon all the time. It's a five-year rolling. Well, it's you sort of like Putin, isn't it? They just keep they just years. keep going. Just keep going. Mine, is, mine is is that I'm a I'm a believer in term limits. And I yeah. think that every, every horse I, has its course. What is the term limit? Um, what do you uh, think it is? Again, I think that's dictated by the environment yeah. and the strengths and skill sets of the person in the job and the applicability. And right. at some point, my course will have run, and then it's <clears> somebody else's turn to grab the baton and go. This day, we had President Trump speaking. You and I did a panel two or three years ago here. It was hugely invigorating about global banking and global finance. Do you need a Trumpian unilateral America or do you need to get back to a more multilateral global system? Does that assist you for Which way do you cut on that? Well, one is I, I, would, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as Trumpian, but you know, any time that we can move towards across the aisle bar, bipartisanship to get things done, mm -hmm. I think that's healthy. Because when you think of the business community, the business community just doesn't want lower rates. It likes certainty. Yeah. It likes clarity. And I think the, the more divide you have, not just yeah. in the U.S., but around the world in political parties, the more uncertainty you have. Just got an email in from New York. John, I have to apologize for the brain freeze on Ms. Fraser at Citigroup. That was, can I explain why that occurred, folks? Had a little bit to do with the sequence of 1 a.m. in a piano bar hey, last you're gonna night. you're going to get in trouble. You know, I, got a text, I got a text from Tom Keane last night at about 1 a.m. No way! I think just said, Belvedere. And I woke up and I replied, one of us is in bed, I've done the reading. You've done the are you going to get an early night? No, no, we're, no we're, it's exciting here. Mike, thank you. Thank if you, you see Tom on the streets, please look after him. Mike Corbett there. And Tom, just so you know, from the Harvard game, it was a spectacular 58 minutes and 32 seconds. Was it seconds. wonderful? <laughs> it, truly one of the greatest games. For those of you globally, Harvard and Yale in November was an... Ex it's everything sport needs to be about uh, in America. Hey, we Mike, thank, thank Michael Corbett. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. As always. about commercial bankers and central bankers. There's other people in investment. Why don't you bring in an esteemed guest here? Really pleased to say we can bring in Marty Flanagan, the Invesco CEO. Marty, great to see you. Thank you. Thank I want to read out a quote from you at the end of last year because it really jumped out to me. We're going through a once-in-a-generation change. Every single client we deal with around the world is using fewer and fewer money managers. What does that mean to you? <coughs> well, uh, I've been in the industry since 1983. There's been a the discussion that is going to consolidate since that period, it just hasn't until right now. And I'd say this is really a post-crisis phenomenon driving it. Uh, just the cost for money managers through technology regulation is much higher, but also clients are demanding much more from their money managers. They want a broad range of investment capabilities, but also more. They want thought leadership, they want support in anything that they might be doing. And ultimately, it's a good news story for those managers that can deliver that but it's a great news story for the clients. They get more, they'll get economies of scale out of it. It's a win-win story. It's been tough for you. Last year was tough. Yeah, absolutely. Stock cut in half, Yes. bleeding money, AUM sliding. What can you do this year to start to stabilize things? Yeah, so uh, we're on that track right now. It's early into the, the year, but uh, we're looking you know, forward to a very good year right now. Much of that, as we talked a minute ago, we went through the third largest combination in the industry. And mm -hmm. typically what happens is that when you're going through that combination, uh, the, the clients, mm -hmm. until the combination is done, yeah. they step back. So, Marty, for our audience, just so they can follow if they're not familiar with the story, yes. integrated Oppenheimer, around about $250 billion of yes. assets. Traditionally, what we see, when you start to absorb that size, you start to get some money go elsewhere. That's Things right. stop for a little while. That's exactly right. Does this remind you of what happened with the company at the turn of the millennium when you absorbed Perpetual? Yeah. It took a couple of years just to get things going. Will this be the same story? There's no question about it. So what's the measure? So who are you talking to? The clients that we talk to, they're very supportive of the transaction. They say, what you all are doing is exactly what should be happening in the industry. And you know, mm -hmm. very much supportive of us. And we completed it in a very short period of time. Yes, you May, did. Absolutely. And Amazing. we're really, on January 1st, we're off to the races. 
I, I want to go to those moments in a year where you just stop. One of them was, of course, the headline of the ECB saying that they're going to stay on hold forever. Another one was sitting on the set in New York and opening one newspaper. The first ad, we're giving it away for free. I turned the page. It was another discount broker. We're giving it away for free. And then there was a third ad, three ads in a row yep. in, the, in that yep. retail space saying we're going to give it away for free. Right. Is a bond house of your great distinction. And frankly, with the Oppenheimer Equity Management internationally, how are you going to make profit knowing you're in a give it away for free industry. Yeah, so uh, nothing's for free, first of all. Uh, I think that's one point to make. But you know, when we look at uh, the range of capabilities, and really where those focuses were on were cap-weighted indexes. And uh, they've grown enormously post the crisis. And when you look at the spectrum of how people build portfolios, cap-weighted indexes earn it, they're very cheap. Uh, but as you keep going up to factors, active alternatives, you get better returns, excess returns, you get downside protection, you're going to pay more for that. So clients are literally using the spectrum of assets uh, classes like they never had before to get the outcomes. Do you, are you going to affect this with a close approach? We just had Lawrence Fink on from BlackRock. Are you going to do a so-called R-squared, folks, which is a statistic on this, tight up against what the indexes are doing? Or are you going to bring that R-squared down and really differentiate? So that's really been what's been going on here. And this also was really coming out of, uh, I'd say, regulation and really the focus on, uh, there were active managers that were really index huggers, right? So you're paying an active fee for really not much. I did, that's a surveillance break exclusive, folks. I did not know that occurred. <laughs> Carry on. Okay, there you go. So the point is, you know, you're seeing a lot of, you know, this, this movement of money away from that to those people that generate excess returns, and, and you can. Uh, but you really want the full range of capabilities when you're building those portfolios. Marty, I want to talk about some of the problems that you have as an index provider as well. There's a lot of concern that people start to think there is liquidity in certain indexes, that the underlying securities that they track aren't very liquid at all. Yeah. Leverage loans. You're a yeah. big leverage loan house. Yeah. You've got the ETF. Does that not concern you? Yeah, so when you talk about it at that level, you would. But when you have to look into the portfolio, what happens in the, in our, uh, the bank loan portfolio, there is probably 35% liquidity and there's backstops to it. So it is not an illiquid portfolio that is open-ended in the marketplace. But John went right where I wanted to go, which yep. is your true expertise in leverage loans. I should point out, folks, that Invesco has been a huge supporter of what I've done for years and has been a supporter of Bloomberg uh, surveillance. In the old days, and I go back to David Goldman at Bank of America, it wasn't the garbage tranches that got us in trouble. It was the quality tranches coming right. from a 92 down to an 89 or an right. 85. Are we setting ourselves up for that same risk again? It, hard for me to answer that question. But again, that's the role of the portfolio managers, right? And if you have high-quality portfolio managers, they're the ones that are making that assessment. Don't you worry, though, Marty, that those portfolio managers at the moment are being forced into quite a liquid parts of the markets, into private markets. Woodford, former colleague of yourself, yeah. got caught out earlier right, this right, year. Right. Legendary investor pushed into the wrong stuff. So uh, that is probably one of the current concerns. When I look at the market, all the money is going into... Uh, private credit at the moment. It is sort of, it's everybody's answer to the question. Mm -hmm. And I've been in the industry long enough now too, when everybody's going the same way, good things don't happen with that. That's a sweeping comment. The reality is you have to look at it manager by manager, mm -hmm. the quality of the managers, their expertise, the ones that have been doing it for a long time that are thoughtful and highly talented, right. they'll do okay. John and I are humbled by the success of our podcast. Folks, we're targeting a million downloads a month. We're not there we're yet. Very we're very close. Trying, <laughs> we're trying to get there. If I look at them from we've got, over here, We've got Invesco it next close. to us and we're doing a shameless plug. A shameless plug for Invesco podcast. to sponsor please our please podcast please. So, <laughs> so we can get home. Is it and, free? It's the podcast, yes. It, it, but See, it, it, it won't be free if you help us with it. <laughs> okay. Marty, it, the, the people that listen to the podcast, there's an intellectual group that want to be in your business, yeah. but they want to know, is there a future to the CFA Institute? Is there a future to active managers? Is there a future to security research? What do you see? Thank you for saying that. So all people talk about is a change in the industry right now, and they look at the downside, right? So there's no, absolutely, this industry is going to thrive. What's happening, it continues to grow. It's going to be, it's almost a $100 trillion industry right now. Who's talked about that? It is not going away. 
And the need for CFAs yeah. and smart people to do the work, it's always going to exist. Okay, it's going to be there. The, with, the, with an Oppenheimer combination, how do you meld those two cultures together? Because I'm sorry, I mean, I remember the Oppenheimer Target Fund from a few years ago. Folks, it's like decades old in their international excellence. Yes. How do you culturally meld all those egos together? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So I've been through a number of transactions in my career, and the first conversation, everything looks good on a piece of paper. That's not what matters. It's spending time with the people, understanding the culture, and are you culturally aligned? That's the first, if you don't get that right, you have a problem. I don't know when you do, but you will. Each team is separate and distinct. They continue to do exactly what they did when they came to Invesco, and that will not change. Our whole goal is to give them greater resources to do what they've done in the past, is to make them even better than. Marty, let's get some targets if we can. Yeah. Current AUM, how much of that is passive? About a quarter? Uh, yeah, it's 250 billion of it. So about 25% yeah. yeah. in and right. around. Right. Any targets to get that up to a certain level? What's the ultimate balance for an asset manager at the moment? So I get asked that all the time. All the time. Okay, not I'm the three digits, go to two Come digits. On, let's say, let's say, so the answer is clients determine that, right? Okay. So at the other hand, we have almost $200 billion in alternatives, and it really is your expertise and where the clients are, are moving in. So I feel really good about the talent that we have, and it's uh, really us spending time with our clients and making that difference for them. What about the international mix? What are you seeing in flows of fund now? Q4 was finally an Oppenheimer, an Invesco Oppenheimer quarter. Yeah. Is yeah. that, it, it, from where you sit with your knowledge base, is the international joy yeah. of the last quarter going to continue? Yeah. So it's a fundamental strength of the firm right now. You talk about emerging markets, our expertise in China, uh, you know, staying on China alone, just uh, the growth in China for the money management industry. and. The interest in China is at a peak level, as you would imagine. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we see that. It's Again, it's early in the year. That's what's going on right now. Well, it's going on right now, but the strategy forward here to compete in you're, you're in, everybody likes to talk about scale and we do touchy-feely at Davos. You're in a brutal yeah. industry right now. Yeah. What's going to be your best practice forward? So international equities is one. Emerging markets, very, very talented. China, for us, you know, just a fundamental strength of us. We manage $70 billion in Chinese securities. Uh, we have $50 billion of money that we manage for local Chinese. Uh, the alternative wow. business, the factor business, we're the second largest factor provider in the world. These are all areas that are going to continue to grow. And you talk to the issue about you know, active management. Those that generate alpha are going to do very fine. And it's going to be in asset classes like uh, emerging markets uh, uh, and global. In 2006, everybody was running around trying to make 14 basis points on every transaction. Are we back to that right now within the in traditional Invesco bond yeah. shop? Yeah. Are we back to 06 where everybody's getting stupid about 14.14 percentage points, itsy bitsy amounts, yeah. oh boy, I succeeded. Yeah. Are we back to this? I, I, I hope not. And look, I, I think if, you know when you put on the business hat, first of all, we're legal fiduciaries, so you've got to be responsible for your clients in the first place. If you're not, game over at some point in time. So it's literally making sure that you know, you're, yeah. you're in line with your clients when you have those conversations. Martin Flanagan, thank you so much for joining us today. He's Thanks the Chief Executive Officer you, yeah, thank you. of Invesco as well. What a perfect time to bring in the Director General of the WTO, Roberto Azevedo. Great to see you, Roberto. It's a pleasure. Can we talk about phase one? Absolutely. I want to understand whether there's going to be any complaints sent to the WTO about the agreement between the United States and China that was secured in the last couple of weeks. Well, What's your first take on that? <laughs> well, there is a, that first take is good. I think it's good that you see some degree of uh, detente uh, between the two. Uh, it's about time that we see some of those uh, tensions, um, um, you know, at least contained uh, and hopefully uh, rolled back. Um, I think this is a kind of agreement that is going to be looked into by all WTO members with uh, very, very carefully with uh, magnifying lenses and checking whether everything is, is, is in accordance with the WTO uh, disciplines and multilateral agreements, um, they will be watching very closely. So if there is something that is amiss, uh, we'll know. Well, you're the DG, so let's talk about it. Some of the content of the agreement. The optics might be encouraging that we settle some of the issues between the two biggest economies in the world. The detail, agreeing to increase trade by 200 billion, 
and basically targeting a fixed amount of agricultural product imports out of the United States into China at a level of 40 billion. What's Brazil going to say to that? What do other well, suppliers of soybeans say to that? You'll have to, you'll have to ask Brazil, but I, I would suppose that uh, to the extent that some of those tariffs are rolled back and some of the impediments are taken away, uh, it is natural that those imports are going to go up. But as the Director General, I'm asking you, how do you reconcile everything the WTO stands for and a deal between the United States and China that has socialist-style central planning elements to it between the United States and China? Depends on how you implement that. Uh, as Director General, I'm not going to be pointing fingers, so you know that. Uh, but uh, I, I suppose that, for example, if you're buying uh, food or products under uh, state contracts, that's okay. That's not uh, governed by WTO rules. They have a, a special uh, agreement uh, that is valid only to the signatories. China is not part of that, but the, the other WTO members cannot complain with what happens in terms of government purchases. However, um, most favored nation uh, tariffs apply and non-discrimination applies. Um, so people will be looking at that very carefully now. The agreement is very general. Uh, it doesn't specify how those purchases are going to happen, uh, what mechanisms are going to use, what kind of preference is going to be granted to U.S. Uh, products of U.S. origin vis-a-vis -vis the others. I suppose Brazil and the others are going to be looking very closely at all that. But we're pretty familiar with the, the enforcement mechanism. If the Chinese don't reach those targets, the tariffs go back on, don't they? Well, that's a very unusual uh, mechanism, actually, because it's normal that in these agreements you have some kind of dispute settlement provision, yeah. something that looks at uh, whether the, the two sides are complying with what has been agreed. This one, however, uh, doesn't have any kind of uh, arbitration or any kind of uh, third-party oversight. It is about, uh, you know, directly uh, dealing with uh, perceived shortcomings. So if one side is not happy, ha happy with what the other is doing, it will complain, they will have consultations, and at the end of the day, unilaterally, the party that is complaining, if, it, if it's not satisfied with the actions of the other side, corrective actions of the other side, it may um, you know, impose sanctions or whatever it is. It's, very, um, it, it's not very usual to see something like that. I, I can see that you're hesitant taking yeah. a view on it at the moment. You did mention dispute resolution, though. Let's talk about the dispute resolution mechanism at the WTO. For our audience right now who maybe haven't been following this very carefully, walk us through what's happened and what's happening with the dispute resolution mechanism at the WTO. Well, the two things are separate. I think what's happening between the US and China is it's US and China Absolutely. bilateral agreement. That doesn't affect the WTO dispute settlement mechanism at all. Um, what is happening now is that clearly the US um, that has been complaining for quite some time. So this is not a Trump administration complaint. This has been there before about the appellate body and the way that the appellate body has been conducting itself. Whether you agree or not with those complaints, that's a different conversation, but they have been complaining for quite some time. That in this administration, they said enough is enough. We need to change this. And I think that's where we are now. Uh, we are now sitting uh, in Geneva with others and say, okay, so yeah. we need to change the system. How? Uh, is it doable? Do, do the changes that the U.S. want to see, would the others live with it uh, or not? I mean, this is, this is where we are at this point in time. We cannot take too long, though. Well, can we talk about some of the issues? They think that some of the people on that dispute resolution body at the WTO are paid too much. They are what? They are paid too much. They earn too much okay. money. They're incentivized to drag on some of the disputes because they can earn more money. That's one of the issues out there. It's a, you're aware of it's it. It's an important issue, but I think it's a small issue. Do you issue. think they're paid too much? I think, I think it was agreed by members. I mean, I didn't decide that. Sure, I mean, but the this members, is the United, this is the part members, of the United States pushback. At the the moment, United States agreed to that. The United States agreed to that. The EU and all the other members, 164 of them, decided these are the terms of the payments. But over time, inefficiencies were introduced. I mean, those disputes were supposed to be taken care of in 90 days. Now, the appellate body has been taking six months, sometimes more, uh, to, to, to finalize its appreciation. My understanding a, is that those on the appellate body at the moment. But I don't think they're doing that because of the money. I think they're doing but let's that. Let's talk about the money. The money's yeah. a feature of this. The yeah. administration, the US administration under President Donald Trump, as you know, have been very unhappy about the way some of these bodies have been run. 
And as I understand it, you can earn north of 300,000 Swiss francs sitting on the appellate body. You can, can't you? Now, for the US administration, they're looking at that situation right now and saying, that's too much. Mm. We need a more efficient mechanism, and we need to incentivize it to be more efficient as well. What's your thoughts? As the Director General on that particular issue, what are your if, thoughts? If that were the only issue, we could do it like that. That's easy. Not a problem. That is not a problem. What do you think the bigger issue is? The then? bigger issue is how to make it uh, run faster, how to make it more efficient, how to make it um, responsive uh, to those disputes in a way that they're not setting precedents or they're not, according to the U.S., for example, they do not behave as a court. Yeah where you have five or seven, seven guys there who believe that they are international judges. They're above, uh, you know, they're above right or wrong. They, whatever they decide, it's, it's the divine rule or something. That, that's the way the U.S. sees it. Um, so I think we have to change that kind of perception. That's, that's for me, is the, is the trickiest part. Let's wrap things up by getting to one of the disputes. Mm -hmm. The United States getting together with the European Union, the Japanese, to complain to you guys that China is subsidizing its industries unfairly. Can you deal with these kind of issues? Absolutely. How? Easy. Make the rules. One of the, one of the problems we have is that the US and well, Japan and the EU claim, and uh, rightly so, by the way, that the rules are not perfect. That, for example, the uh, export subsidies or prohibited subsidies rules, they don't capture many of the things that are happening out there. And therefore, we need to update the rules to begin to be more you know, responsive to today's uh, reality. Now, the problem with that is that why do we not have that? We do not have those rules as, as perfect as they wish they were, because in the past, before China even got into the scene, um, the big powers, the US, the EU, well, Japan, yeah. Canada, Australia, and the others, they could not agree amongst themselves on those rules. So they said, you know what, put, the, put that aside for the moment. Let's, let's go on and do other stuff. China came in, the WTO, 2001, and since then, they have been doing things that others are saying, well, that's not uh, what, what, the, uh, what we were expecting. Therefore, we need to... I think if members are unhappy with that, they have to talk to, about it. And I don't think that China is, is against having this conversation. I think they, they already told me directly that they are fine with negotiations. If the people want to change the rules, let's change the rules. But let's sit down and have a conversation about that. As your experience has been, as many people's experience has been over the last 20 years, the Chinese often talk about getting around the table to do things. We don't get the follow-up. Are you really confident that the Chinese would agree to the pressure that the US, EU and China is putting on them right now to pull back from subsidizing their industries when they've been pretty clear over the last few years that they've got a plan? Dominate certain interest in industries by 2025. Doesn't matter to the expense of, anyone, expense of anyone else. And we're going to subsidize those industries until it happens. Why would they sign up to any rules at the WTO when we know that's their mission? Because things change, and I think that uh, the degree of, um, of um, rejection that you see today uh, in the international community for you know against certain practices that are happening in China, whether they are true accusations or not, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Uh, those are real. And I don't think China can close their eyes on this. And uh, they, they realize that it's better to have a negotiated solution and deal than to be subject to unilateral you know, tariffs the way that, that they have been in the recent past. Roberto, it's been great to catch up with you. A lot of topics to get Fantastic. through. And I know yeah, you've got a busy you. week ahead. Roberto, thank you very much. That was Roberto Azevedo, the World Trade Organization Director General. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.